Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. I'm really delighted to have somebody recommended by Margaret Casey Hanford, who's been on the podcast before. He's a very inspiring man. Um, he has done so much already in his life. Not only has he played for as an athlete with the NFL, he's also played rugby, um, had a terrible accident, which was unfortunate, changed the course of his life. But he's now also a broadcaster, just come back from the Eagles versus the Kansas City Chiefs at the Super Bowl. Um, and just a fascinating man who I've learned a lot from already in a short space of time. Without further ado, would you introduce yourself? Thank you for that glowing introduction. Uh, I'm Christian Scotland Williamson, former two-sport professional athlete, current broadcaster, speaker, and future barrister. It's been an excellent journey, but one that isn't ending anytime soon. Life's never going to be dull for you, Christian, is it? You know, you, you just don't do things by half. So, Christian, um, we were talking before we start about inspiring leadership and, um, you know, perhaps a person that you found to be an inspiring leader and the qualities that they showed. So who would you, who would you call out? Uh, outside of my family. So the, the two that are first and foremost are, of course, my mother and father. But beyond that, I would actually say Alistair Kirkwood, uh, former managing director of the NFL in the UK. And the reason why now people have a dedicated Sky Sports channel to NFL and also three London games per year. So he's someone who's been instrumental in my journey to the NFL, but also since leaving in managing my career as a broadcaster and beyond. Yeah, fascinating. Well, uh, I'm looking forward at some stage you're going to connect us and we'll perhaps see if we can get Alistair onto the onto the program as well, because he's got a, a great story about promoting NFL in the UK, making it what it is, as you say. So... You you mentioned your mother and father. Um, you know, parents are important to people. Some people have parents that they wish they hadn't chosen. We don't choose our parents. Others, like you, are very fortunate and very grateful to their parents, as I am to mine. Um, tell me about the, you know, your life journey that shaped you as as a leader that you are today already in a short space of time. Um, and and who the people were that were influential to you in your life, such as your mother and father. Tell us a bit about that. I think you have to go back to the very beginning and, and discuss my grandparents first and foremost. They were part of that Windrush generation that chose to leave the Caribbean and come to England in search of a better opportunity and education for their children and more, more dreams that could become attainable. Um, and I think I'm a product of that where those, those messages, those sayings, all of the old school Caribbean discipline was passed down through my parents. And now I'm able to fly at a much higher altitude and succeed in arenas and multiple arenas that could only have been dreams for my grandparents. So I think it starts there. But beyond that, it's understanding that both of my parents were the first in their family to be born in England. I saw both of my parents get their degrees because I was a child at the time. Um, and I was able to see that hard work and discipline that my father had from a boxing career to the police force and then becoming a criminal barrister. But beyond that, the passion and support that my mother gave him, which has now been transferred to me and supported me and all of my dreams, which, you know, behind every man or even next to every man is a great woman and none more so than my mother. Mm. Well, that's uh, a great story. And I, I think, as you say, the old school Caribbean standards, I think of my uh, best friend and best man, Errol Stewart, who's in Jamaica, uh, Errol is the same age as me. Uh, perhaps he's maybe a year old. He's sixty-two, but uh, his mother was from uh, Cuba. His father was from Jamaica, and yeah, old old school Caribbean standards, which got him into the Jamaican Armed Forces, and then we met as uh, officer cadets at the Royal Military Academy Santos. He's going to come and stay with me this year, but he was my best man when I got married in Ocho Rios in Jamaica. 
Uh, and he also got me to, to give a speech to the Jamaican, Jamaican Defense Force. And I met General Rocky Mead. What a great name, Rocky. Uh, who's a small, wary, but very bright and very capable leader who went to become their chief of their general staff. And uh, now he's in an, an ambassadorial role. And I'm hoping to get him on the podcast because he's a, a truly inspired leader. Uh, but but lovely, this um, your father, the... Uh, ABA boxing champion, a policeman and barrister. And I, I was wondering the barrister connection. It is an interesting one. And also I was reflecting on uh, our patterns of behavior today are shaped by our parents and our grandparents and their parents too. And sometimes it's quite good. Uh, I did the Hoffman process recently and uh, to try and break the patterns of the more negative mm. behaviors that we inherit, which we don't even think about, but we, Try and mirror and copy. I mean, in this case, uh, you, you're going to go and uh, go to the bar and you want to become a lawyer. Um, there you can see on the pictures behind me, a picture of my father on his aeroplane. He was a fast jet pilot and an officer and me next to him as an officer. You know, you tend to be drawn into either doing the opposite or some similar things to your parents because that's what you know. Mm. Um, you can choose many things in life, but you can't choose to who you're born and where you're born. Um, those things are beyond your control. Uh, any thoughts that you have on on that that the influence of parents and you know what went on for for their generations and and also that lovely Caribbean connection, but then the UK as well. Definitely, I think that it's I've been blessed where I've been able to benefit from the best of both of my parents and tried to limit the things that you'd want to improve on. Um, I have the caring, kind-hearted, soft, delicate nature of my mother that perhaps wasn't afforded to men of that generation in the same way to be expressive in their emotions, which ultimately has allowed me to be more vulnerable in certain situations where I've needed to rebuild myself and seek help, um, for example. But beyond that, I would say that my mother really taught me, but my dad showed me where for long periods growing up, I actually didn't see him that much because he was always working. Um, and then as you get older, you start to put things together and realize that the sacrifices that were made where absence was actually the biggest blessing, where it actually was in your interest not to have him around all of the time because he was either studying, trying to get his degree to then become a barrister, as well as working shift work for the police. But supported by that was my mum, who was always there whenever I needed her and picked up the phone, even to this day where I'm a grown man, but I always know that I have that support. So in terms of continuing patterns or, or breaking patterns, I would say that emotional unavailability that men have had of that generation, I think that I've been able to break that somewhat. But beyond that, it's having the courage to step away from situations that were no longer serving me or no longer allowing me to fulfill my potential and deciding to leave rugby and go and pursue the unknown in American football, but also underpinning all of that with education because I saw my father decide not to pursue a professional boxing career because his contemporaries now are either destitute alcoholics, gambling addicts, and the the balance of probabilities was definitely not favoring a positive outcome. So I guess in terms of recognizing patterns as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old writing into my yearbook when I left primary school that I wanted to be a barrister, I never had ambitions of being a professional athlete, let alone a two-sport professional athlete. And I would say that growing up with both of my parents and the messages and the, the things that they've instilled in me has given me the confidence to navigate all of the different arenas that all the different arenas that I've entered in my uh, journey thus far, but being able to understand them at a much earlier stage of my life rather than truly figuring everything out for the first time for myself. Mm. Well, what a journey you've had already. I mean, um, I think you're just almost 30 now, uh, with a short while to go, you'll be 30 and Happy birthday when you eventually get there. Um, but it was 21 when you broke your back. Was that right? Because yeah. um, you were you played not only NFL, which is a hell of a thing, and there's there's some great pictures of you looking like an absolute bruiser. <laughs> and uh, who would know that you're now going to be uh, training as a as a lawyer? Um, and, and then the rugby. So tell us a bit about that story. It's an unexpected journey again because I grew too large for football and I was put in goal <laughs> and I played for a good team. So the ball was never in my half. So I found it was a bit of a waste of my time and athletic potential. So then one of my family friends said, why don't you try rugby? My dad was a boxer. My brother 
uh, ended up playing basketball. So all of us had our own respective dis- disciplines. And I went down to the local rugby club and I never looked back. I loved it. And then I went to the Royal Grammar School High Wycombe, which is a very good rugby school, which has produced a few England internationals. But I was never in an academy. I never played county rugby or representative rugby for any England age groups or anything like that. And I felt like I was always overlooked. But in hindsight, it allowed me to have a very normal childhood and normal existence where the only reason why I played sport was for fun and to have fun with my friends. It was never really pressured in terms of being 13 14 years old in an academy having to turn up for camps and trainings in in your school holidays and knowing that if you don't do it then then you'll never be a professional so I was able to have a normal education normal childhood and that's why I've been able to pursue high level academia while playing because I only got my chance in my final year of study at Loughborough University where Worcester Warriors who um, have had their recent troubles but at the time were in the premiership and needed a player to stand in for a reserve fixture. I went down and played. And within six weeks, I was signing my first professional contract in the changing room before my first 15 debut. And then I scored on my debut and never looked back. So it's been a, an abrupt and very quick journey, but it was one that I was always prepared for because I've obviously got a, a high sporting pedigree in terms of my, my family. But beyond that, I had the discipline and ability to recognise an opportunity when I didn't have it. Mm. It is very interesting, this um, this high-performing ethos that, that ran through your parents, ran through you, your brother. And uh, I, I'm the same, very sort of driven by high-performing, trying to be world-class at whatever I do. Um, but it also can be quite intense, can't it? Mm. And um, it puts such huge pressure on ourselves, let alone anybody else. We've just got this really high bar. You know, I have a, a long dead man who was a hero commanding officer, saving the lives of two other people, but dying in the process himself. They lived, uh, he died so that they could live. That's a hell of a bar to try and live up to. How, how can you ever live up to that? And in your own way, you've got there the, the policeman, the barrister, the boxer, uh, and a lovely mother. And it's, it's hard. And have you ever found it like you're thinking... You know, I'm coming short or I've got to achieve more. Have you ever found you've just got too intense? I think so. I think when I was younger, my brother was involved in the Great Britain under 20 basketball team. My dad had boxed for GB and won the ABAs. And objectively, I'd done nothing really. I just played schoolboy rugby, um, played in the Daily Mail Cup semi-final. And then that was it until I got my, my chance at, at university. So that always, it weighed on me, but not significantly to the point of my detriment. It was more in the back of my mind that I'm... I'm cut from the same cloth. I have the same genes and, and athletic potential, but nothing really came of it until um, I took my chance and, and turned professional. But I would say that there have been different stages of my career where defining success and failure has have been problematic, where it's, it's not a zero-sum game, but objectively, when you're in the performance industry, you measure yourself on wins and losses. And being able to not attach your identity or your value and who you are as a person to outcomes and instead into process. Um, that's something that I've continually had to work on because objectively there have been moments where you have to overcome adversity, you have to deal with unfair, you have to deal with unfair situations and things that you would have differently, but you can't control that. And those outcomes are are difficult to swallow at times, especially in the short term, but with time and understanding as well as having other goals and other things to turn to. Um, I think that's why I've always studied while I've been playing, because when my on-field performance has been limited through injury or time recovering, I've been able to extract some value and feel like I'm still moving forward with other areas of my life. Yeah, it is a, a really good point. You you can't put your whole identity and everything behind the winning and that uh, sporting prowess. I know too many people who've, been in sports and like you they got injured and they have to they have to choose a different course my brother graham uh played for the england schoolboys under 19s against the uh australians north of england schoolboys and uh he was he was uh chosen in the days when it was quite amateur he was a number eight and, and you know they not everybody was built like you and, and in those <laughs> days you could you could get away with it um but there wasn't so much intensity but of course when he was then training as a doctor in london he found he was injured more often than his patients 
mm. because it was starting to get quite violent and quite vicious. And and if you weren't built like a house, you could take take some injuries. Though even the Rock has had so many injuries. If you list his all his injuries out, every bit of his body is broken. Um, he takes his injuries too. Just doesn't doesn't stop you having it. So I think it was very sensible of you to to plan for something else. And and when it does happen that you can't carry on with the sporting career, you've got to make use of it. But there's a lovely connection between leadership and many of the skills about team building and working together and sharing and others and and in business. But of course, you're now going into a legal profession, which is often like um, your, your my role model, Harry Matuvu, King's Counsel, uh, who is an awesome an awesome individual uh, and championing so many worthy causes. But I, I found Harry when we were talking about leadership, because in many ways, you just must remember that I'm actually a bit of a solo act. I, I'm actually operating on my own. I'm almost like they work for themselves. And so in some ways, it, it's a, a solo player um, rather than being a team player in the legal profession. Um, what's your thoughts? I think that growing up playing team sports, my dad was a, a boxer, which is an individual sport. So he always encouraged my brother and I to play team sports because he knows it's a lonely process. It's a lonely endeavor where he always used to have this anecdote of, I used to go running on Christmas morning because I knew no one else would be running then. And so I've grown up with an individual practitioner in every sense of the word as a boxer and now as a barrister, as um, the head of my household. And then now I've, completed my journey in team sports and I'm actually entering an individual pursuit as a barrister rather than being a solicitor and working for a firm and I think within that it's it's a lot of responsibility and you have to have courage to be able to manage your time and understand what your vision of what your life and work should look like but beyond that I don't think that removes any sense of leadership or responsibility from you because the the inspiration I've had from even listening to Harry Harry's journey and what he's done as a barrister, where I'm now pursuing a career at the commercial bar. And on the junior end, there are few and far people that is few and far between that look like me. Yeah. And the visibility piece and what that can mean in terms of lasting legacy is it's beyond, I think, understanding until you experience it for yourself, where I played rugby, where I only ever had up to three teammates who are people of color, uh, even in the professional ranks, maybe five. And then I've been thrown into an environment in the Pittsburgh Steelers where I have a black head coach and coach Mike Tomlin, a Hall of Fame coach who's never had a losing season. My position coach was also a black man who'd been coaching in the NFL for over 20 years, been to four Super Bowls. And then I'm surrounded by a 70% black locker room and black success for the first time in my life where until that date, as a 24-year-old, the only people in my life who I'd seen in responsible and leadership roles in a sporting context were either my uncles when I was playing under fives football or my dad. Mm -hmm. And understanding what that meant for me as a person, as a man, and coming back with that experience now and looking at the bar and looking at people like Harry Matova, KC, and what he's done, being able to then hopefully serve as the next generation's beacon of potential and what could be, is something that's not wasted on me and especially having navigated both the sporting context and now looking to enter that arena it's combating the old tropes which I experienced firsthand when I was playing where people stood in the way of me pursuing further education and doing my masters because I was only really valued for my physical output rather than my mental. Mm. It is interesting that you, you talk about being in the locker room there with the Pittsburgh Steelers where having been a person of color and being you know the odd man out you were suddenly among a whole load of role models it must be great and they must stay with you now those people who are all around you and were they very supportive of you incredibly and also it's it was a cultural exchange as well because even though they're both english-speaking countries culturally and especially the unique culture of rugby and the unique culture of american football they're complete opposites and so as part of that cultural exchange, I was forced to interact with people who had never met an English black person before and were saying things like, I've never met an African-American English person before. And I had to stop them and say, I'm not African-American, I'm a black English person and I sound like this, this is my real voice. And for a lot of people who are from rural Alabama, 
they'd never left the country and so coming into contact with me in some respects was almost like coming into contact with an alien where they had so many <laughs> so many genuine questions and trying to really understand what life was like for another culture so it was a it was a cross exchange of information where I was able to get an appreciation for what life would be like for them growing up in black communities in rural Alabama versus mm -hmm. what I had experienced in my in my life to date so it was um it was something that definitely I, I think will be a defining period of my life in terms of understanding who I am as a person. Mm. And what was it like for them in rural um, Alabama? I mean, I've just been listening to the um, uh, Grant Takes Command, recommended by General David Petraeus, who was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, uh, and all about, you know, black American soldiers fighting for the federal side. And they weren't given much chance until the last minute. And they stormed the heights of, um, I'll think of it, was near Richmond, um, Petersburg. Uh, and very successful in that bit, but often weren't given the confidence or the opportunity. But of course, they were fighting against the South, who were all for slavery and keeping it the way things were. What For, for these modern day guys from Alabama, what was it like for them growing up? I think especially within the bubble and the insulation that being a football player offers you and the protection, it also is a lot of anxiety where effectively a community's hopes and dreams rest on your shoulders to be the one that makes out, to be the one that changes a generation and all the generations to come of that area and community and family where more often than not, a player will get drafted to a, a team and their whole family will move out with them. That's cousins, that's mothers and fathers. And for a lot of them, fathers weren't on the scene. So they are figuring things out for the first time where it made me realize the blessing where I had two parent household, which a lot of people aren't privileged to have. And, and the, the security that comes with that, as well as having a father who was absent, but absent in a productive way rather than absent through um, lack of care potentially or mm. lack of involvement. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that I, I realized and I came away extremely grateful for was that there were lessons that I, were able, I was able to learn in terms of being a man and leadership and, and morals and values and, and core responsibilities and duties that you should have um, that I didn't have to figure out for the first time on my own. And a lot of these young men are in that situation where for their community, the only hope is to rap or go to the league. Um, and so education and output in terms of their mental capacity isn't valued as much as being in an arena with 80,000 people screaming your name. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a whole culturally different experience. Um, and then taking it from there to looking and reflecting back on the whole of your life thus far, um, what would be one of your proudest, happiest moments? And what did you learn from that? And what would be one of your personally darkest moments? And what did you learn from that? So the I will begin with the what I thought was the darkest moment at the time. And then that was superseded by something else later down the line. Um, was breaking my back. I broke my back. Um, I had a car accident and went into my first preseason. Uh, with a bad hip and, and it all came to a head where I ended up with two fractures in my back and needed surgery which kept me out of sport for 726 days and it's that that day it's burnt into my memory which is just shy of two years in that time I had to ask myself the real fundamental questions about life about where I was going about who I was because I'd never been in an academy suddenly I had won the starting job of my my new franchise my new career and then within two weeks I was out of action couldn't walk properly and had to relearn how to walk then how to jog then how to run and that process took two years and in that time I decided to go back and develop my mind and went back to university went to Bir University of Birmingham and studied for my master's in international business because I didn't know if I was going to have to retire I didn't know what was around the corner, but I knew that I didn't want to come out of this experience just the same, where each scan I was having every six months, it was inconclusive. I wasn't sure if it was healing properly or not. And so there might have been a time where 
it was medically decided that I wouldn't play again. But if I didn't do something in that time to develop myself as a person, um, namely study, then I would I wouldn't have been able to be happy with just sitting and waiting for a result to come my way. So the happiest moment out of that darkness was actually walking the stage for my graduation. Um, and then three weeks later, I was on my way to the NFL having left rugby. So I managed to turn the pain of a broken back and find the purpose in it and in understanding the discipline, the habits and the commitment required to learn how to walk and then ultimately play in the premiership again to then using that to get my master's to then going to the NFL and understanding that I'd overcome what was a horrendous time in my life. And then similarly, when I left the NFL, I, I left um, with a, a badly diagnosed injury, which then ended up requiring four surgeries. Again, I had to learn how to walk wow. again. I had to learn how to run again and ended up coming back and playing in the premiership with Harlequins. But then deciding that I wanted more in terms of opportunity, in terms of my life, and I completed my law conversion and my master's in law while I was playing for Harlequins. And now that's put me up in the position where as a 29-year-old, I'm five weeks of teaching away and some exams, and then I can call myself um, a barrister in England and Wales. Fantastic. Well, what a story. My God. And I, I'm thinking particularly, you know, you get injured once, twice, and then you go into NFL with those old injuries, and then you get injured again. Um, and uh, you're going to have to look after yourself so that in later life, it isn't all going to start seizing up on you, all that inflammation and the injuries. But I'm sure you'll you'll keep that ticking over. Wow. Well, look, congratulations on all that you've done thus far, um, particularly the those moments in, in hospital, uh, as I know myself, when in deep pain in hospital and you're lying there thinking, you know, this is not easy. How do I manage the pain? How do I think through it? How do I look for the for a future? What, what can I do from here? What, what is my life like? Um, bit of advice you wish you had when you started out. You know, here you are, 29. When you're back at 16 years old, knowing what you know now, Christian, in those intervening years, what advice would you give to yourself? Don't worry about this and this bit is important. What would you say isn't important or what is important? to someone of that age? I definitely say, don't worry about who's winning right now. It's a, it's a long race and it's about consistency over short-term victories because objectively there was a time when I used to go to the England under 18s and under 20s games and watch on the sideline and think I could be playing in this, but I never had the opportunity to showcase my talents. And of the people who were playing in those games I used to watch, not many have had the career that I've had. Um, and they were all in the academy setups, in the county setups, regional setups that I wasn't. And if I had allowed that to get to my heart and discourage me at the time, uh, instead of fueling me to understand that I have what it takes and it's just about an opportunity that didn't come my way when I was younger, then if I had looked around me at that time, I would have been more stressed. Whereas now if I could go back and tell myself, don't worry, everything will happen in your time. Um, then that's the advice I give myself. Hmm. Well, uh, and the other thing is um, for those listening uh, on Apple, Spotify and other platforms, you've got one hell of a collection of trophies around you. Um, and there is a particular one, which I like with, with all the tassels hanging off it. What's that one? What's that one behind you? So that that's actually a funny one. That's um, a, a fantasy football show that I won recently, um, which was good. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, I haven't actually been, had that much of a decorated career um, through injury and other things. I, I felt like I was always a semi-finalist, which was extremely hard to take. We spoke about this um, earlier where the win and loss column it's hard not to let yourself um, be consumed by that. And I've lost a lot of semifinals and never had my moment, as in America, they say, where the confetti rains down and, you, and you're a champion. Um, and that was something that I think driven me where I don't take an opportunity for granted. And I will always give my best effort um, because it's for me. I know that the, the fruits of my labor may be enjoyed by someone else, but 
in terms of a foundation stone and a core principle it's if i give my best effort i know i can walk away with my head held high regardless of the outcome and so the reason why i have have that trophy there is because it's the first trophy i've won in 10 years <laughs> well also and there's there's a, a very clever system behind it it's almost like a a moving picture screen yeah uh, uh which changes over every so often those are cool what what, what is that is that just uh... uh so i have um i have my uh few inspiring photos so this one at the moment is muhammad ali with uh malcolm x behind but that's that rotates between um photos of me on my journey um in america uh my dad boxing and things that sometimes i pinch myself that i've done that's why i have my jersey um hanging in the hallway next to my best friend, Jordan Mylata, because both of us, within five years, we started playing American football the same day. And I've just got back from broadcasting with um, BBC Five Live, the Super Bowl. And my best friend, whose jersey's hanging just next to that, um, was playing and starting as a left tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he, neither of us had put on a helmet, buckled a chin strap, or knew the slightest thing about American football five years ago. And for us both to be operating at the biggest stage, me broadcasting and him playing, um, every time I walk past those those jerseys and have the inspiration from the photos, it just reminds me that every day ordinary people do extraordinary things. And I've been blessed to be along for the ride for some real history that's been made in America. Yeah, and, and I can see why you're such a successful public speaker and you, you very kindly do as speakers for schools. Uh, you got some some great stories. And I think sometimes people who go straight to success without any setbacks on the way, they haven't got as many stories as those of us who've had injuries and failure and setbacks and disappointments and things that we wanted to go for we never got. And think at the time it was the worst thing that could possibly happen, that we didn't get it or that you broke your back or whatever it might be. And then years later, you realize that actually, um, as Michael Caine said, um, uh, seize the difficulty in, in any, any situation. What's the difficulty? What are you going to make of it? Uh, and his his story was when uh, he was acting and doing method acting and, and someone was having a fight in the in the house and he had to open the door and step in. And the couple fighting had thrown a chair and it had lodged in the doorway and he couldn't get the door open. So he was saying to the director, can't get the door open. And he goes, seize the difficulty. If it's a if it's a if it's a comedy, fall over the chair. If, if it's a drama, <laughs> smash the chair. Make seize the difficulty. So I think you've definitely done that already and you've learned early. Um, if there was one thing you could change in life, uh, if you could live it again, what would it be? And if there was a crucible moment that has shaped you, what are those crucible moments? Perhaps tell us one of each. I think uh, they both almost fit into the the same answer, really, which is I would go back and have the courage to stand up for myself more earlier in my career where I was facing injustice. I was facing things that weren't going my way and I knew that they weren't uh, internally and in my gut. And I think that's why I needed to go through those to then become such a fierce advocate for opportunity um, and fairness because I've experienced firsthand um, the negative aspects of that and multiple times uh, I think potentially that's what's fueled me to want to be a, a fierce advocate in the future um, pursuing the bar because there's been difficulties where an information asymmetry where you're a young player trying to make his way trying to chase a dream and things don't go according to plan and then certain certain people are behaving in a certain way but you don't have the courage to stand up for yourself because you're you don't want to lose the opportunity because it is a rare opportunity. Whereas now it's easy to say with hindsight and having accomplished what I have in my career and, and had the experiences that I've had that I could go back and, and do it differently. But I, I was making the best decisions I could at the time. But with the information that I have now, I would have stood up for myself uh, with more conviction earlier. Yeah. No, it's it's good to know that, which leads us on nicely to the Inspiring Leadership Compass, the the uh, the eight components that we found, my wife, Lee and I, as we researched what makes high performers like you and others inspiring leaders into uh, very successful people in their lives. And as you say, sometimes people appear very successful early in their career, but it's a long race. Mm -hmm. And I look back and, and saw myself quite a failure many times in my life. But actually, I've had some some high points. I've been a you know 
world champion mount, double mountain marathon. And I've done other things where, you know, working for the head of the army or doing airborne training and getting my parachute wings and my maroon berry. I was very proud of those moments. But I've also had some real down points. Um, but actually in the race, I feel like now at the moment, I'm in a really great place and I'm counting the blessings of every day. I'm alive. My brother David isn't. He died of cancer last year. And we didn't see that coming. You don't know when anything's coming. So make the most of it is certainly a message for me. Going around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, moral quotient, MQ, true north. Yeah. Um, we can all have our own values set. But what have you done when you've let it slip? You're, the values that you hold as important, Christian. And mm -hmm. and I know whether you've done this, but I've certainly found myself drifting and, and not sticking to those values. And and you need to get yourself back on track. What, what What's your advice about helping people get themselves back on track to really good, solid values of, of the way of behaving and principles by which to live your life? I think you have to ask yourself the fundamental questions and, and figure out what you really want, because anyone can read something that someone else has put together, but it might not resonate in the same way. And so that might be the reason for any drift. Um, as we've already spoken about at length early in my career, I, I broke my back and I really had to go back to the drawing board with my back against the wall and ask myself those fundamental questions and even wrote down almost what is my cornerstone of my life. And on that would be, faith, family, growth, and resilience. Those are the four things that I can always return back to. And those are things that I prioritize in my life. So faith, faith in, in the unknown, faith in those moments where you can't see through the dimly lit night and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, family, because my family are, are the reason why I do most of the things that I do because they've supported me, given me the opportunities that I have. And growth is to do right by those sacrifices it's to constantly try and be better try and seek to extract every ounce of value from every opportunity and then resilience because i've had to be resilient i've had to be able to fight through those difficult times and those hard times because it's not always going to be smooth sailing it's not always going to be a linear upward trajectory um so i i wrote those down i think in 2014 when i first got injured and I have them as my screensaver on my phone, faith, family, growth, and resilience. Yeah. And it's really important, as someone famously once said, to have strong opinions loosely had, held. Um, but the thing that you shouldn't hold too loosely, loosely is your values and the principles by which you'll live your life, your moral integrity. That shouldn't be loose. Because when it is, that's when we get unraveled. Thank you for that. I, I found that very, um, very powerful. Faith, family, growth, resilience. Purpose question, PQ after MQ. What gives your life meaning and purpose? Why do you do what you do? It's your dharma, your calling, your vocation, your ikigai, as the Japanese would say. What's your ikigai, Christian? It's to explore the limits of my potential. I've been blessed with a, a journey of diverse experiences where I've been able to explore things that I never could have imagined in going to the NFL and playing professional sport and now turning to the bar. But beyond that, it's exploring the limits of my potential in every, every, every avenue and opportunity, whether that's speaking as a speaker in speakers for schools or coaching or mentoring within um, academies, because I feel like my journey and the experiences that I've had in my journey need to be shared. And so in furthering and exploring my potential and the limits of my potential, if that le leads me to bigger and better things that I can then forge a path that others may then be able to follow if I can communicate that journey, then I feel like that's my life's purpose. Mm. Well, well, it is so important to think about that sense of purpose and, and it, it shaping it and reviewing your life and thinking, what is my purpose now? Because you've had seven surgeries, um, you know, a lot of, uh, situation where you've had to reflect and review but you also have Margaret as um, a mentor how did that come about and tell people about Margaret why uh, she's a special mentor for you so I have a, a boardroom now really of, of mentors who I can turn to for different aspects of my career my personal life and, and what I'm trying to do and I decided to move on from playing last summer and I knew that in trying to navigate my transition to life at the bar and away from professional sport, the hardest thing is not knowing what you don't know. 
So as a player, you're always coached. You're always listening for little bits of information that may make the difference between success or coming short on the weekend. So I thought I wanted to take that same apprentice mentality and apply it to my next endeavor. And Margaret Casey Hayford is is one of the people who I would consider um, a, a founding board member effectively on my journey where she's done some special things with her career and has insights that I could only hope to learn over the course of the next 20, 30 years. And so being able to lean on her for her sage advice and direction and leadership, um, I've always turned to and gravitated towards strong women uh, in my life. I have a strong mother, aunt as well. Um, and she is someone who has had to face adversity in her own experience being a black woman operating in the field that she is. So someone who also understands what it's like to struggle to defy the odds and being able to lean on her is honestly, um, it's a blessing. Yeah, I know you're very lucky and I found her very inspiring, very straight talking, no mess. You know, you know what you're going to you going to, you know what you're going to deal with health quotient is the next one clearly very important as you as a athlete uh, twice over really a two sport professional athlete professional athlete but now you're going to have to be a business athlete and what's the two things from physical and brain health that you're going to focus on that you would advise others are really key to success um, in just keeping your health because we know if we look after our health it affects our immune systems improved and it also affects our our brain health and uh, our ability to live longer so what's what's your two bits of advice i'll always try and draw on my career as an athlete where it's a real privilege because essentially you are allowed to pay you're, you're paid to play a child's game but in service and in performance of your contract you're asked to be the best version of yourself physically and mentally and to turn up to work every single day ready to perform at the highest level. And I don't think that's something habitually that needs to stop just because you, you're not playing anymore. So I take a lot of the same tools and habits and routines that I, I had in my playing career, which allowed me to keep going forward and moving forward through the ranks. And so the, the largest ones actually are hypnosis i do i do hypnosis and a lot of meditation um trying to break that 10,000 hours of experience mold um when i went to america where i knew i didn't have enough time to catch up in that manner i um sought out mental coaching and professional help um and was able to explore hypnosis and be able to to train my mind in a state that didn't require physical expenditure so effectively doubling my time of learning and performance and making me improve so much faster. So that's something that not only gives me space when I'm stressed and also allows me to prime myself for performance ahead of time, but also is just a routine that I combine with a yoga practice, um, with walking in nature, with, um, I have a stationary exercise bike. I bought a Watt bike for my, for my flat now where I'm no longer having to train for four or five, sometimes six hours a day and physically demand as much from my body. But at the same time, uh, one of my coaches always used to say a body in motion stays in motion. And with the injuries that I have had, I know that for myself, it's about constantly moving, um, lubricating the joints, um, being able to stay flexible, mobile, and not succumb to the nature of those industry, uh, those injuries and, um, and let them win. So now moving into law, why wouldn't I be practicing with hypnosis in terms of delivery, in terms of being able to perform better in court, understand assignments and what's required of me. And then beyond that, staying physically healthy so I can stand tall, so I can stand upright when I, and project when I'm in court and having to um, give submissions. Yeah. No, I think the whole area of um, previewing how are you going to perform almost time and again, imagining you're playing that game or you're giving that presentation or you're standing at the bar and speaking. It, it definitely sets people up for success. So well done on that. And and it's nice to, I, I don't think I would have imagined, you know, 10 years ago hearing a, a former NFL player talking about the kind of things you've just been talking about, just as I, as a former army officer, 
uh, people would have been laughing uh, at me at the bar if I'd been telling them, not the bar, the bar with the beers in. <laughs> if I was telling them that that's what I was going to be doing and, you know, yoga retreats and um, mindfulness and meditation and um, uh, doing ayahuasca ceremonies in <laughs> Peru and things like this. Um, emotional and social quotient. You know, your uh, how do you use your emotions intelligently? I mean, you strike me uh mature beyond your years um very able to build rapport within minutes of meeting me when we first chatted uh, some weeks ago um what's your tip on how to do that because um it's it's a key skill and sometimes in the law i found some people are very high iq but their eq is appalling uh just as some doctors as my brother's a doctor mm-hmm. have very high iq but their their bedside manner is awful. So what's what's your tip billing that? Having felt unheard for large parts of my life and felt like I was looking on the outside in, uh, I understand what that feeling is. And I think that's what allows me to try and relate more to people or understand a different point of view, as well as having lived in other cultures and had that cross-cultural exchange. But beyond that, it's fundamentally is the person you're dealing with or speaking to, is their opinion being heard? Is their, is their life's experience, even if you don't understand in its entirety, are you able to, in some area, relate to an aspect of it? And I think that having been able to be in those situations where I felt like the person I'm speaking to or who's coaching me doesn't understand me as a person, I place a huge value on trying to make people feel heard and understood. That's a, a really important one. And it's great when you really are interested in someone's life story, as I am, and it's part of our job here as a as a broadcaster myself, is to find your story and get you to tell your story. Um, and you know when you've got an interview who's not really interested, he's just going through the motion and trying to get on to their particular agenda that they've got, their angle. Uh, and this one, my angle is I'm interested in what makes inspiring leaders like you and and how can you inspire leadership in others. Thank you for that. Uh, that was really interesting. So my next question, Christian, is um, a particular one dear to your heart, collaborative, cognitive and cultural intelligence. Um, how have you dealt with the ability to deal with people very different from you and to recognise diversity, equality and inclusion? That that all is underpinned by my experience in team sports. I would uh, actually lean on coach Tomlin the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers I had a moment where I was able to speak to him we were both on the elliptical machine next to each other for half an hour and um, it was a moment of real humanity where a coach who's on such a pedestal in terms of society and expectation in that sport in America where he's one of the few consistent high achieving and performing black head coaches in the National Football League to be able to have a few moments to to speak with Mike Tomlin the person rather than the coach and to get his understanding of how he effectively is the general for a 200 person machine which generates billions of dollars um, and whose performance every week is assessed by whether you win or lose how is he able to galvanize a group of 60 odd players and get them to put their bodies on the line and go above and beyond and give the extra effort that ultimately is the decision and the decisive factor between winning and losing championships. He said to me that he tries to run a football team like a basketball team. A basketball team has far fewer people. It has up to 12 players, whereas a football team at sometimes has 90, as well as coaches, backroom staff, training staff, ticket sales, marketing. And he said, I try and get to know every single person as an individual first before I put ask them to put their hand in the pile and make a contribution to the cause. And that really struck me. And that, and that goes, I guess, back to the essence of feeling heard and seen and understood. Because, again, tying back to the visibility piece, I had someone who was such a high performer, high achiever and leader on such a consistent basis taking the time to speak with me, an English player who'd never played the game before, but he made me feel and he gave me a legitimate chance, not based on my background or where I came from, but by my performance and the effort that I put forward on a daily basis. Yeah, no, fantastic. 
He's someone we ought to have on this podcast. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's the person then. <laughs> Mike, Mike Tomlin, that's your mission. All yeah. right? get, get Mike on this, on this podcast. <laughs> Say he is he is your inspiration. Yeah. Uh, a very inspiring guy. Resilience uh, quotient, you know, picking yourself up in times of adversity. I don't think you've had any adversity, have you? I, <laughs> Not much. Have I, have I missed that? No, no. <laughs> Just a small amount. Um, you know, resilience, being comfortable, being uncomfortable with being, uh, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. But... Uh, what tip would you give people about resilience? People listening, you know, they, they've all had bad moments too, but you've had your fair share more than your fair share. What was a good tip that served you well in those, those, those days when you're in such pain and such agony and, and out of business for 726 days, what's your advice? Sometimes you have to be okay with sitting in it and being patient and embracing it and feeling the pain ultimately, because when you emerge from that experience, you'll be hardened by it. You'll be better able to cope with situations that may be different, but ultimately might poke the same wound or be as triggering as that experience. And life will never stop throwing curveballs at you. And sometimes it takes longer to recover from situations than others. So after I came back from my uh, back injury, I had a, a brachial plexus, which is a, a shoulder stinger where I couldn't leave, lift my arm for five to six months um, because of nerve damage. And sometimes that doesn't come back. Sometimes it does. In my, in my case, it did come back. But because I'd had two years of an experience of excruciating pain and not being able to, to walk properly, it made me grateful for the fact that, well, I can walk. I just can't lift one arm. So there's other stuff I can do. And so when you have a, a mindset of gratitude, but also have taken the time to be patient and really work your way back to health, back to being the best version of yourself, um, that's ultimately what resilience is. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen again. Yeah, great, great uh, examples there. Brand, reputation, image, and impact. Goodness, you've been in the business of brand all the way through. Now you're in your new brand. I mean, I think you've, you've got a very um, powerful brand already that you built up by the age of 29. Um, what about 360? Do you get any 360 feedback? And and how do you learn from others how you're perceived? Hmm. That's, um, I, in terms of 360, it's interesting because when you're playing, you have the internal feedback from your head coach, your offensive coordinator, your position coach, and then ultimately 80,000 fans in a stadium or whoever's online wanting to critique your game. And so I suppose it doesn't really get more 360 than that in terms of people who don't even know you are commenting on your performance. And, and one thing that as professionals, you have to learn very early in your career, the correct voices to listen to because not everyone understands your journey, not everyone understands or has sight of all of the work that you're putting in. And so you have to have key stakeholders or, or a boardroom in my case of people that I turn to and ask for direction and also to help me understand either how I'm being perceived or is my interpretation of a situation an accurate interpretation. So one thing I had to learn early in my career was to actually silence um voices who actually aren't qualified to comment on your trajectory or where you're going yeah that's uh, very important particularly when you've got so many trolls and people yeah. uh, out to trash you legacy lq final one of the eight um what would you like your legacy to be in your personal life and in your work so um, a caring family man who always kept his word and did what he said he was going to do so i'm someone who if i set a goal or if I say I'm going to be somewhere, you can rely on me to be there. And that's personal and professionally where there are obviously time constraints on everything that you do. But in terms of being able to prioritize and when you make a commitment and give someone your word that you'll do something, you execute and you deliver. And I think that dependability, whether it's professionally or personally, um, I don't have any children at the moment but that's something that I was able to experience when I wouldn't see my dad but whenever it mattered he'd always be there and I wouldn't have to worry about whether he'd turn up or not yeah that's a lovely one I always make sure I, I do that with my daughter we had some dad and daughter time I took them to Dubai as a special treat before they get married this year 
And one of the lovely things that will always stay with me is they said, Dad, you know, whatever we went through, when we needed you, you were always there. Even if we were grumpy, you were there for us. And um, that's something I'm very proud of, that I, 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 throughout my time as a father for their 28 and 29 years, I've always been there for them. Um, executive teams or teams. Um, how do you take, uh, you've been in many football, uh, in rugby, football, um, and NFL uh, teams. What has the people you've been with, the good leaders and the coaches done when they've got a toxic team or a team that's gone bad, the culture's just not right? If there was one bit of advice that you'd pass on from sport that is useful in business too, what, what's the bit of advice? I was able to see from Worcester Warriors who have since gone in, into liquidation and then contrast that experience directly with the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are one of the most successful franchises in NFL history, having won six Super Bowls. And I was also able to see how each environment dealt with adversity differently, dealt with losses, dealt with um, things not going their way, whether it's injuries and things like that. So I would say that the the greatest lesson that I took from my time in Pittsburgh was that strength of leadership and understanding and conviction about a purpose and a destination ultimately reduces the chance of any toxicity within your team because I was able to see a man in Mike Tomlin who when we started I think one and four which is one win and four losses um, and the whole city was calling for his head for him to lose his job decide to steer the ship and take complete responsibility and his whole the thing that he used to say in most meetings was don't get into little groups and try and solve the world's problems on your own. Because more often than not, when a team isn't winning, everyone has their own idea about why it's not winning. And that's where leadership comes to the fore because he made it his responsibility to direct the team towards success. And it wasn't for um, us as players to go into little groups and try and moan and say everything that's wrong with the the system or why we're losing and it's for him to provide direction and that's the thing that I learned the most was don't get into small groups and try and solve problems by moaning and being negative and that's ultimately borne by strength of leadership yeah that's a very interesting one. I haven't heard that one before and I I would agree with it and I've seen that happen where people split, splinter off into small groups and they all start having water cooler conversations about what's wrong. Just as if you run a poor meeting, yep. uh, people will have a meeting before the meeting and a meeting after the meeting because the meeting itself was badly run and didn't make a decision. Uh, and then they'll think, well, look, we can just get at the boss and get him to change his opinion uh, after the meeting, though he's made his mind up. Um, and some get that. Last two questions. Um, the, the, the first one, Christian, is um, a favorite book on leadership, on health, well-being, or perhaps sport leadership that you'd recommend people have a read and why you'd choose that one? Uh, Bill Walsh, The Score Takes Care of Itself. That was a book, one of the early books that I read when I was um, recovering from my back injury. And that's what gave me the faith to not rely on results and instead focus on the fact that preparation and consistency ultimately leads to the score take care taking care of itself where it becomes almost inevitable where if you have proper planning preparation and review that will lead to good performance and it's not actually the singular effort it's actually the sum of consistency um so that was a a great book in terms of bill walsh obviously was a pioneer in an american football in terms of creating a new style of offense and that bred to success um and i feel like being able to lean on American football and the the lessons it learnt, it, it teaches you because ultimately it's extremely competitive. It's a violent sport. It's a sport of numbers in terms of the practitioners and the players involved where there are 40 people on each team playing in, uh, in any game plus coaching staff. And there's a lot of lessons in leadership that can be taken from the great NFL coaches. Mm, very true. Very true. Interesting. And, and uh, perspectives I've not had before. Thank you. So, um, Christian, would you finally introduce yourself again? Uh, tell us uh, what you do and give us your top two minute top leadership tip. I'm Christian Scotland Williamson, former two sport professional athlete, broadcaster, speaker and future barrister. My top tip is 
The standard is the standard. How you do anything is how you do everything. Wow, that's a lovely one. Christian, it's been an absolute honor having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am certain you'll go from strength to strength. Please keep in contact and I will watch your career and help you in any way I can. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.